0: Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Macon. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is journalist and author, Wendy Moore. Her new book, No Man's Land, explores the World War I British military hospital known as Indall Street, a hospital run by two suffragette doctors, Louisa Garrett Anderson and Flora Murray, a hospital staffed almost completely by women who treated over 26,000 wounded soldiers, It's a fascinating book published by Atlantic Books in the UK and Basic Books here in the U.S. in April of 2020. Wendy, we're delighted to have you. Thanks for joining us here on uh, this Thursday afternoon, your time, Thursday morning for us. Yeah, pleasure to join you today. Wendy, Keith and I were talking about your book uh, that we're going to be discussing today last night, and we're both a little bit embarrassed that we didn't know more about this story. I mean, this is a really important story, and is this more well-known in the UK than it is perhaps here in the US? Or you know, have you found many people uh, encountering this story for the first time?
1: No, I think it's equally unknown in the, the UK as it is in America. Um, it's really a forgotten story. I think probably because the hospital itself was demolished, so it ceased to exist. And it, all memories of it seem to have been really erased. So um, nobody really in the UK, so I've written this book, knew very much about it at all.
0: Well, how'd you uh, come across it? What sparked your interest?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a journalist by training. So um, I've written most of my career about medicine and hospitals, um, but I've always been interested in history. So I did a medical history diploma and uh, because of that, I started writing books and I've written four books so far on medical and social history. Um, so that's my real passion, is bringing medical history stories to a wider population. Um, so with this book, my fifth book, um, I was looking for another really good story. And um, by chance, I walked into the Welcome Library for the history of medicine in London, which is my favourite place to be. Makes and sense. And yeah, I saw an amazing picture on the wall. And it's an oil painting by a war artist called Francis Dodd. And it shows... Um, an operating theatre completely um, staffed by women. So all the doctors are female. And I was sort of, I did a double take because uh, this would be um, unusual enough today to see that. um, Even today, uh, it's kind of, it's relatively rare for surgeons to be female in Britain. Um, But, um, and then I realised this was a picture from the First World War and it was showing uh, an operating theatre in a military hospital in London. And so I was absolutely captivated and I uh, decided that I had to investigate and uh, find out more about it.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's it's included here in the middle of the book, right? Is It's one of the... That's the right, yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, it is quite a romanticised picture, actually. It's quite a fascinating picture, I think, in its own right.
0: Yeah, we're going to get into that here in a little bit. Um, it, it's interesting, because, you know, this is a century ago, and yet at least for people like me and Keith, it's a, it's still a very familiar environment. I mean, you can see the anesthesiologist, right. It, you know, the, it could be yeah. Murray in this case, Dr. Yeah. Murray. Um, not all the equipment and intubation tubes and everything you see today, but it's more of a mask with probably chloroform, but everybody's situated in a similar position. There's what looks like a Mayo stand, a back table. It's, it, it's kind of a way of putting you into history through a familiar lens, at least for, for us and probably many in our audience. Let's talk a little bit about. I think it'd be helpful just to give us a little review and set the stage here. I mean, you know, we're going back to the First World War. World War. We're also talking about um, women's rights movements. Uh, people, women still cannot vote either in the UK or uh, here in the U.S. New Zealand was way ahead of everybody on that, but everybody else was step or two behind. And then, you know, kind of paint the landscape briefly for us, so we can get in and start looking at some of these women, especially Anderson and Murray.
1: Well. It- uh, the UK, women doctors, women had won the right to qualify as doctors in Victorian times. So, in fact, um, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was the first doctor to train in Britain to um, become a, a doctor um, in 1865. So, um, so women doctors were able to become, uh, to treat people, but they were still, um, by the First World War, they were more or less ghettoised into treating only women and children. Um, So uh, women doctors were not normally allowed to work in mainstream general hospitals. They were not, um, they didn't generally get uh, surgery posts. They weren't, it was taboo for them to treat men. So they were effectively um, sidelined into uh, working only in hospitals that were run by women to treat women and children.
0: So it's probably helpful, too, to understand what medicine and healthcare and hospitals look like then, too, right? So today there's the NHS, and if no one was familiar with that, there certainly are now after the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, But that's not what was the case then. So hospitals look very different than each other and how they were funded, who was allowed to go there. Um, Kind of paint that landscape for us so we understand what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, well, essentially there were two types of hospitals. There were charity hospitals, which were uh, financed by voluntary subscribers, and there were um, hospitals which were funded by local authorities, um, and they had developed out of them the infirmaries of workhouses. Um, But none of them were entirely free. Um, People who went there had to pay a small subscription or depend on the goodwill of a a doctor. Um, but, But they were mainly for the poor, so anybody who could um, afford to avoid a hospital did so. They would go into a, a private nursing home or be treated in their own homes. Uh, so um, hospitals were generally uh, for poor paying patients. And, um, and there were staff by um, doctors who uh, worked there for, um, for, for free. So they were honorary appointments. Um, most, most doctors, in fact, worked as either general practitioners, so family doctors essentially, or they had um, private practices as consultants. Um, And uh, and then they would go into the hospitals on a kind of weekly basis. Um, But um, yeah, hospitals were generally places that most people tried to avoid. Um, In a pre-antibiotic age, um, they were really seen quite rightly as um, centers of infection.
2: So um, the the people who were uh, the doctors then in these charity hospitals were actually people who um, who could afford to not um, to not take pay either. Did they have private practices on their own that they supplemented or these were the the non-working class, the upper class to some degree?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, but people who became doctors were the, uh, the. only people that could become doctors were those who could afford to do so. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah, they build up. Um, they built up a lu- uh, lucrative private practice, and then they would go into uh, work in a charity hospital. Um, you know, maybe for one afternoon a week. So that was a kind of a charitable thing that they did. But they also then got to treat uh, to teach uh, medical students as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would get fees from the medical students for that.
2: Yeah. And you do make the point about the lack of antibiotics, also a lack of a lot of surgical techniques. Uh, abdominal wounds were lethal. Um, really things that that we kind of take for granted now. We were probably uh, at that point closer to medieval medicine than we were to modern medicine. And really what this story, what spans the time when modern medicine really started coming in, I think.
1: Well, yes, indeed. I mean, especially um, in the First World War, this became um, far more acute because um, so many of the wounds um, that uh, the men were um, suffering in the first world War on the battlefield became infected with gangrene. Right. And um, so th- to begin with, surgeons didn't even bother to try to um, heal or to, to operate on a, an abdom- abdominal wound or a chest wound, any you know real sort of internal wound like that, they would, they would just leave, they'd be left to die. Um, but also many of the compound fractures, um, the men, men who got those died from uh, gangrene. Um, so um, it, was, it was very primitive. It was um, a real sort of you know, a shocking environment for uh, doctors, you know, both male and, and eventually female as well.
2: And the, the other um, uh, part of the backstory that I think is um, not surprising, but I don't think American audiences really appreciate, is the militancy of the suffragettes and the the movement that was going on. Could you fill us in a little bit? I, know, I realize we don't have hours to talk about the whole story. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it really does set the scene for our heroes here. Yeah. Um, what? Where did that come from? And and uh, how active was it? And and uh, it was really a, a society shattering uh, activity for these mm-hmm. these women.
1: But the, the two women, um, the main two women in my story, so Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson, both um, had joined the suffragettes' movement. Um, So as doctors, um, they had been stymied from working in mainstream hospitals, but they were both frustrated, really angry about this discrimination. And as part of that, they had joined the suffragettes movement. Um, So Louisa Garrett-Anderson, she was the daughter of Elizabeth Garrett-Anderson, the first British doctor, woman woman doctor in the UK. Um, And um, her aunt, Millicent Fawcett, was actually the leader of the suffragist movement, who were the the non-militant campaigners. So she'd really been brought up in this environment of women fighting for their rights and fighting against discrimination. Uh, So it was no surprise whatsoever that she wanted to campaign for the vote. Uh, So Louisa Garrett-Anderson, she initially joined her aunt's movement, the suffragists, but but she quite soon became disillusion with this it didn't seem to be making any headway the government at the time kept making uh, promises to the suffragists so that women would eventually get the vote but nothing was happening and so she like many other women at the time um, joined the suffragettes and that was mrs pankhurst's movement um, who decided to actually take militant action to try to achieve their aims and their motto was deeds not words uh, so she actually went to prison for four weeks or a window. Um, So that was a uh, a really quite um, serious sort of uh, action and a dangerous thing to do for her reputation. Uh, Her, Flora Murray, who she she met in the suffragette movement, um, she took even more um, risky action, really. She was, um, she didn't go to prison, but she became the main doctor looking after the suffragette movement. So she was uh, seen as being the honorary physician to the suffragettes. She treated Mrs Pankhurst and many other suffragettes when they'd been to prison and they'd been force-fed and come out uh, extremely ill and um, very weak and she nursed them back to health. But she also helped some of them to evade the police and to escape capture. So I think she was um, you know, taking even more sort of uh, risky action for her reputation. Um, So so the the suffragettes had begun by um, small protests, by disrupting um, election campaigning meetings and um, hanging banners up and so on. But this did escalate. And by 1914, it had become um, quite a sort of uh, really quite violent campaign. They were actually starting fires and uh, setting bombs. so it, I think it got to a point where um, they almost, there's almost no return, which is the point at which the First World War broke out. And at that point, the suffragettes then and the suffragists both suspended their campaigns to support the war.
0: Yeah, which is really interesting because um, it was a huge sacrifice. But, uh, well, we'll see this shortly here, you know, how much these women were actually needed. Uh I was just one more thing on this. I mean, we talk about militancy. I was not really surprised by some of the level of violence. I mean, it, you know, and I understand. I mean, I can imagine their frustration. Um, and a lot of these women came from more privileged backgrounds. So when you say the reputation, that really did mean something, right, Wendy? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's not a simple, fleeting thing.
1: That's right. I mean, most of the women really did come from uh, quite sort of you know wealthy backgrounds. Um, yeah, so, um, there were lots of kind of titled ladies who supported the suffragettes who also went to prison. Um, Louisa Garrett-Anderson, in fact, she uh, was one of the founders of a, a movement to refuse to pay income tax. Um, so that was one of the campaigns to try to, uh, get the government to change its mind. And she also led marches by women doctors, um, against, um, calling for the vote. So, in fact, there were lots of women doctors who did support the suffragette movement. Um, yeah, I think they were probably more angry than other women in particular because um, they had a qualification exactly the same as their male colleagues, but they were being um, effectively barred from doing the same, same work. And although they were, um, they were professional women who, you know, some of them were earning reasonable amounts of money, they had their own houses. They um, were denied um, representation, so they were denied the vote. So I can completely understand their anger.
2: Do, do you think that their um, uh, the actions of the women doctors going to Europe and setting up the field hospitals or even setting up Endel Street ultimately – Did they do it as as an opportunity? Do you think they said, "Okay, this is our chance to show the world we can do this? Or do you think they did it out of patriotic? Well, patriotic is the wrong word, but but just because it was the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, I think very much both of those things. I think um, they did want to serve their country, but they also realized this was a once, once in a lifetime opportunity that they could actually prove their worth. Um, So at the start of the war there were about a thousand women doctors in Britain Um, and when war broke out um, about 60 of them immediately volunteered their services to the war office Um, but they were told very bluntly that they they weren't wanted, that women doctors were not needed in the army Um, so several of them actually then started to set up their own units to um, work abroad. Um, In fact Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson were the first two women doctors to take a unit um, abroad and so they did that in the middle of September, so just about six weeks after the outbreak of the war, they had gathered together other women doctors, nurses, raised £2,000, collected um, supplies and organised a trip so that they could actually take their team to Paris.
0: So just before we jump into that, I, I want to cover one more thing. So you've answered part of my question here, but when Elizabeth Garrett Anderson became the first licensed physician in the UK, um, we go from, well, 1865 to just the outbreak of war in 1914, you know, a thousand women doctors in practice, yeah. where were most of them training? And, and let's, you know, let's start with, um, with Elizabeth, you know, what was involved with her breaking through and getting into what presumably is a, a male dominated, um, you know, medical school. And how did that kind of separate a little bit into one track for women and another one for men?
1: Well, yes. I mean, Elizabeth Anderson had a huge battle to get her qualification. Um, she wasn't the first woman doctor to join the medical register. That was actually um, Elizabeth Blackwell, who'd been born in Britain, but she actually got her qualification in America. That's right. Um, so she then came to Britain briefly and put her name on the register. But then that, but as soon as she'd done that, the, um, the authorities in, in Britain stopped anyone joining the register who'd got a qualification abroad. So that route was, was ended. So Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, um, she tried to uh, train at universities all over Britain. She approached every medical school, every hospital, and she was denied the opportunity to get a qualification by usual means. So eventually she had to do an apprenticeship as a, uh, with an apothecary. And through that way, after doing a five-year apprenticeship in a hospital, working for an apothecary, she then um, was granted a licence through the Society of Apothecaries. And at that point, that enabled somebody to join the register. Uh, But as soon as she did that, that route was closed, so (laughs) everything she did was stopped. She actually managed to join the British Medical Association, um, her local organisation, and when she got to the main conference um the, the members suddenly realized they'd inadvertently allowed a woman to join and so nobody else no women were allowed to join the british medical association for the next 19 years uh, so she was a pioneer but she was on her own for a very long time after that and so she um and another doctor uh, really helped to found a medical school specifically for women uh, so that was the london um, school of medicine for women And that became attached to the Royal Free um, Hospital. And virtually all of the women doctors, um, even up to the First World War, had got their training through the London School of Medicine for Women. Because the vast vast majority of medical schools um, in Britain were still not allowing women to train there.
0: So maybe a thousand doctors in 1914. How many doctors total, do you think? at that
1: point um I, yes, i'm sorry i think i don't know the actual figure but they were still a small percentage
0: yeah very small that's that's more i was getting at mm-hmm. okay well yeah sorry to divert you there so now now we're back to the outbreak of the war give us I because mean, you, you spent a lot of time in this right and thinking about this give us a sense of what how people felt about this war i mean it, it in some ways there was you know it was an excitement we're going to go push the germans back but there, there was a lot of shock, too, right? I mean, I think a lot of people didn't expect this to actually become what it did. And then, obviously, they expected to wrap up in less than a year, and it didn't. So uh, give, give us a sense of how most people looked at this.
1: Yeah, I think right up until um, the outbreak of war in August 1914, most British people were not expecting Britain to get involved in the war at all. Uh, so it came as quite a huge shock. Uh, when Britain did declare war on Germany for having invaded Belgium Um, and then very quickly people did mobilise so Britain had a very small army at that point that army mobilised and went to France and the government began recruiting to um, uh, to get more people into the army um, so there was a kind of big push of uh, you know patriotism. It really was patriotism, where young men were going and getting drunk, some of them, and then signing up together, uh, forming what, what we call pals battalions. So battalions of friends. Uh, so there was a big big recruitment push, um, but that, that kind of um, you know tailed off after a while so I, th- I think it was it was it it definitely would have felt like a long war i think there were um, huge um deprivations uh, there were restrictions on movement uh, rationing came in um and for people on the home front it was it was a very grueling war um and the home and, it, and the war did really come right into the center of london as well so there were Uh, Many wounded men on this on um, walking down the streets and cafes and restaurants. There were three hundred hospitals receiving wounded just in London. Ambulance trains arriving um, day after day. Crowds were surging around uh, railway stations, waiting to greet the wounded. Um, So it was not to mention the Zeppelin
0: airships dropping bombs on people. You don't forget about these kinds of things.
1: It's exactly. I mean, I mean for me that was. one of the kind of quite shocking things um, in my research, because I would not really understood um, what it was like that the, these suddenly these huge Zeppelins appeared in the sky over London, um, at a time when airplanes had only recently been invented. Uh, so people were so amazed, they didn't run and hide, they actually came out of their houses to watch these incredible airships coming over London and, uh, you know, and then raining down bombs on people. Um,
0: in, in some so, cases, it was as crude as just like dropping a grenade, right? I mean, they were just, just throwing them like rocks over and overpasses. It,
1: well, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a munitions expert, but um, some, <laughs> I mean, some, of them, some of them did a lot of damage and sure. um, you know, killed a lot of people. And um, later on in the war, there were uh, airplanes coming over as well, dropping you know, quite, quite, um, quite heavy bombs and um, right in the center of London as well.
2: Yeah, I was struck by a passage uh, early on where you mentioned that somebody who was wo- wounded on the front had arrived at uh, Endel Street like in twenty four hours. Which, you know, you you think of Europe as being far away from London. We do here, and uh, really the war was almost right on the doorstep. Yeah. Even if it wasn't, even without the zeppelin, so it was really immediate. You could yeah. they could hear the battles from the the coast, which is amazing.
1: Yes, yes, indeed, um, and and. That was more towards the later years, of course. Because um, right. to begin with, um, th- th- there was uh, the medical services were really in chaos. They were just right. overwhelmed by the scale of uh, the wounded and the extent of the injuries. And to begin with, it it could take um, as many as long as two weeks for a soldier to go through the various stages and get back to a hospital yeah. in London. So. They did get incredibly efficient and um, towards the end of the war, yes, it, it, somebody could be wounded um, at dawn and then arrived back even
0: that afternoon in, in London. That really is amazing, actually. I it, mean, it really is. Yeah.
2: At a time when you don't think about mass transport at all, it's um, it's just so amazing that they could mobilize. But but you bring up the efficiency, and I think that your what serves as sort of the prologue, the the efforts of doctors uh Mariana Anderson in in Paris and, and outside of Paris. Um, the way they established their own efficiency is just brilliant. Um what um, you know, how much did did they learn? I mean, clearly it worked in Endel Street. Did they Leave a record were, were other hospitals setting up with similar efficiency, or was this really a unique, spectacular thing in, in this time?
1: Um, you talk about France. Talking, yes,
2: that's talking,
1: right. Yeah. Um, I and mean, so, um, so to begin with, I mean, the as I said, the um, medical services were really overwhelmed and were not coping. Um, so um, people went out there and discovered that uh, uh, people were uh, men were getting wounded. And hospitals in Paris were actually empty, so they were, um, they were not getting the wounded to where the beds were. Um, so, in fact, Murray and Anderson, they um, were working in a... Um, they took over a hotel in Paris. It was a luxury hotel that had only recently opened but never, never had guests, and they converted that into a hospital. Um, there were other um, charitable uh, units, and there was also an American unit, who also set up hospitals in Paris to receive the wounded. But they were having to go out and forage for uh, patients to begin with, um, mm-hmm. sending out their own ambulances to railway stations to try and bring back the wounded. There wasn't an organized um, uh, transport of wounded coming back to Paris.
0: We talk about ambulances. It wasn't always um, vehicles, was it? I mean, sometimes it was horse drawn carriages. I mean, these were kind of rough trips for some of these Yeah,
1: soldiers. but. the I mean, certainly the first few months of the First World War, uh, the army was relying um, almost entirely on horse drawn ambulances to convey the wounded. It's absolutely incredible because um, obviously the horses were slow, they got lame, they needed feeding and watering, and they got bogged down in the mud. So sometimes the um, stretch bearers found they had to uh, pull the ambulance carts themselves. You know, the chaos was um, indescribable, really, Uh, absolutely shocking. And this was at a time to begin with when the army was having to retreat. So they were um, constantly having to, um, they were on the back back foot, really. Um, But by the end of 1914, um, the army had really tried to get a grip on things and and started to make big improvements. So they then started sending up motorised ambulances. They started using ambulance trains. Uh, They began to uh, set up field hospitals um, which closer to the front line, uh, which were bigger, where they could do uh, more operations and more serious operations. So the first few months were very, very difficult. um, uh, But by the beginning of 1915, the army was getting uh, better organised.
0: Not, not to get us off track, I didn't even think about this till now, but did you ever look on the other side of the, the fence, so to speak? I mean, did the Germans have a similar experience? I mean, were there women doctors who did anything over there? We I mean, don't have to get too off track. I was just curious.
1: Um, well, I, don't, I don't think there were women doctors. I know uh, the French army didn't have women doctors. Um, yeah. I'm almost certain that the German army didn't either. I think the Russian army did have women doctors. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, and there were other women doctors, British women doctors, um, who did later go out to France and also to Serbia in particular and set up hospitals there um, and later also in Russia. So really as a matter of necessity. Um, armies realised that they needed to use women doctors, um, that they, they basically didn't have enough male doctors to treat all the wounded. Um, so they, were, they, they, they actually uh, became reliant on women doctors as well.
0: Let's go back to, uh, you know, Anderson and Murray here. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, one, you know, their relationship, how they work together. Um, there's a little bit known, I guess, of their personal life, but it doesn't seem like a lot. You know, we can more guess on certain things. But and uh, talk about the, the initial hospital they set up in France, what they were up against, and then how they're, because there's some political moves here, too. They're pretty astute in this, I'd say, especially Anderson, navigating the system, fighting against some of the red tape. Tell us what they were up against, and and how they basically just decided they wanted to get involved, and they did.
1: Yeah, well, so Anderson and Murray uh, have both got about ten years' experience as doctors, but they'd only ever treated women and children previously. They had together run a um, hospital for children, a very tiny
0: hospital with just seven beds. Um, make sure what what are their medical backgrounds, just so we, in case we didn't mention earlier. Yeah, training. they've had
1: both both of them had trained at the London School of Medicine for Women.
0: Or their specialties, them. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, okay. Um, but they, they both trained at another school of medical um, medicine for women. Um, Louisa Garrett anderson uh, had become a surgeon, uh, but she was working in the what was called the new hospital for women. Uh, so it was a hospital that actually her mother had founded that treated only women. So she had some experience in gynecology and some um, general surgery, but only had only ever treated women. Uh, Flora was a physician and also an anesthetist, and she had also only worked in hospitals treating women. Um, but together, they'd also run a hospital for children. So, so she had experience of anesthesia for women and for for children. So, um, and, they were, and I suppose I should say also, and they were also life partners, right? Um, right. They they met each other in the suffragette movement, um, but then they had become partners. They lived together um, effectively as a married couple. They had um, identical diamond rings, um, so um, they really saw their mission, I think, to, um, to go to France as a, a demonstration of their, their mutual love for each other. It was a sign of their commitment, and throughout the war, I think that was, that was really important. They were absolutely devoted to each other, absolutely committed and totally determined to um, achieve what they wanted to do
0: their their backgrounds, right? We talked about this. They're, they're come from, you know, more upper class backgrounds. Was there just a an understood sense of duty that you do get involved in some way or another? Was it a little more heightened with both of them? I mean, and I have to imagine part of it was just a, maybe adventure is the wrong word, but they wanted to get involved and they wanted experience and they knew they would get it there. I and mean, let's talk a little bit more about their motivations as far as we yeah. can imagine.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, they both had come from fairly privileged backgrounds. Um, Louisa Garrett Anderson's family were, were quite wealthy. Uh, she had, um, she'd actually set up a practice in Harley Street. So she did have um, her own private income. Uh, Flora Murray's family, uh, they came from landed gentry in Scotland. So her father had been the, the laird. Um, so they had, um, she'd grown up in a, a large house with uh, large grounds, uh, but, she hadn't had um, much ready cash, like a lot of aristocracy at the time. They had property, but they didn't have uh, much kind of disposable income. And so she had more of a financial struggle, really. Um, but they'd both been to girls' boarding schools, so they'd both been brought up really to, um, you know, think to, to do, yeah, their duty for their country. Um, but they'd had enlightened upbringings as well, and uh, especially, you know, having joined the suffragette movement. So. They certainly were motivated by um, an ambition to prove that women doctors could, um, could do exactly the same jobs as men. Um, and Flora Murray was very um, um, candid about that. She later said she saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to prove women doctors um, could, were exactly the same, exactly as, as capable as men.
2: So I found it a surprise with the milieu of what was going on, the sort of, even, even during the war, there was still skepticism of women, doctors and everything. And I've got to say, reading your book, I was surprised when they got back, having closed their their French um, uh, field hospitals and have the, actually the government say, open this hospital for us. Um, Mm -hmm. When you were researching that, did you get a sense of surprise? Were, were, were. um, Flora and uh, Louise surprised by this. Um, yeah. Where did this come from?
1: Yeah, I think, think things did change very rapidly, in fact. Um, so they had set up a hospital, the hospital in Paris. Huh. Uh, initially, they had um, army doctors, army officials come to look around it, um, coming quite, you know, with a, uh, quite hostile to begin with, expecting it to um, not be very good. But they were so impressed by what they saw but they then um, decided to support the women. And so some of these um, army of officials actually became their allies and their advocates. And so when they then set up a second hospital near Boulogne, so near the front line on the coast, um, the army um, doctors actually said to them, yes, you know this can be part of an official army um, organization. So that was the first um, hospital in the British army to be run by women doctors. And on the basis of that, that was so successful that um, word got back to the war office in London. So the army doctors in France, um, that their uh, praise um, got to the head of the British Army's medical services, um, Sir Alfred Keogh. Mm. And so it was him who then um, met with the two women and gave them the invitation to run a major military hospital in London. Um, and it, it They were surprised, it was unprecedented that this should happen, that women doctors should be um, officially sanctioned to work in the army. Um, And it was a measure of necessity, largely, because by that point, many male doctors had been um, killed in action. And so the the army knew very well they needed more, more hospitals in London, they needed many more doctors, so there was definitely a necessity there. But even so, Keogh himself was um, taking a very brave step. He described it later as a gamble. And many of his own colleagues had um, tried to persuade him not to go ahead. They thought it was too risky. And many of them were saying that um, this hospital, um, the London hospital, would not survive for six months. So there was still um, you know, great um, reservations about it. And even when they set up their hospital in London, so they were given a, a workhouse in the center of London to convert into a military hospital. And even at that point there was um, lots of opposition and um, the war office, many of the people at the war office were as unhelpful as they could be. So they were still really battering against um, a, a brick wall in many cases.
0: Let's talk about the soldiers a bit. I mean, what was their perception of being treated by women? I mean. Almost none of them ever had, you know, unless they you know, been treated as children in one of these hospitals, I presume. Um, what did they think? And, and, what, yeah. and, and what was the state of many of them coming in? I mean, some of them weren't necessarily in a position to be fully aware of what was going on because of their wounds. Yeah.
1: Well, this is one of the, the great fears and the big objections was that men would not want to be treated by women doctors and that soldiers would be, um, you know, shocked and, and not Um, that it was kind of unseemly for women doctors to treat men, to see them unclothed and to treat them and um, to deal with wounds in um, sensitive places, for example, despite the fact, obviously, that there were female nurses that were doing all these jobs. But this was one of the big objections. Um, And to begin with, um, some of the men who arrived at End of Street on these convoys, um, came off ambulance trains, were taken there by ambulances, And they looked around and they were surrounded by women doctors and not just women doctors, but the whole hospital was staffed by women. So it was women stretcher bearers, women orderers, women did all of the work. Um, They were so surprised that they actually thought they'd been sent there to die because they couldn't think of another reason why they should be be sent to a hospital that was staffed by women. But they really very quickly changed their minds and, um, There were lots of stories of of soldiers um, describing it as the best hospital in London, the most popular, the most successful. So there really wasn't this uh, problem at all. They all very quickly accepted being treated by women doctors. And not only that, they decided that they were actually the best. So uh, so that that, um, perceived problem was clearly not, not really an issue at all.
2: I was, um, I'm struck and there's so much we could talk about and we don't have time to get into everything, urge people to read the book because it's such a great book and it's such a great story. But as a physician myself, I'm struck by the modernness of the way um, they set about um, putting together Endel Street, um, the the way they designed the rooms and the way they thought about the patient. I mean, the whole recreational thing, which you have mm-hmm. lots and lots mm-hmm. of information about, mm-hmm. Um, the way they um, they did research, the way they used innovation. Do you did they? Know they were innovating? Did they try to say, "Okay, this is our chance to design something that's going to be even better than anything"? And it is head and shoulder. I mean, you look at the numbers, and the and the the death rates are are nothing compared to the other hospitals um, yeah. at the time. Did they were they aware of this? Was that a conscious effort on their parts?
1: Yeah, I think it was very much so. I think they felt they did have to prove that they could run a hospital that was absolutely equal to any other military hospital in britain but not just equal but uh, not only equal but better so they would so the two women would tell their staff you've not just got to be as good as as the men you've got to be better than the men Um, so they prided themselves on running a hospital that was uh, efficient professional uh, that was pioneering in surgical terms and they they made various um innovations they introduced um, a new antiseptic ointment for example which was Mm -hmm. Highly effective. Um, they had a reputation for, um, you know, good outcome measures uh, for a low death rate. But they, at the same time, they did perceive it as having, as being equal but better and different because they, they, they thought that as women they could run a hospital that also had, you know, feminine touches basically. Um, so Louisa Garrett Anderson, who was their chief surgeon she said that many of the men were more wounded in their minds than in their bodies so she was very aware of the need to motivate the men to help them heal uh, mentally as well as physically and so for that reason she went out of her way to make sure that the hospital was always bright and cheerful the wards were colorful there were fresh flowers everywhere um, and there were constant entertainments there were uh, plays and pantomimes there were concerts and uh, visitors all the time. Um, so it was a kind of relentless tide of um, visitors and things happening just to keep men's uh, spirits up high. Um, they were even taught um, knitting and needlework as a kind of occupational therapy. Um, and, and they also were particularly good at physiotherapy, so that was in its early stages. And also x-rays, which was again another area that was in its very early stages and mm-hmm. a specialty.
2: Remarkable. Yeah. And I love the quote that you have about that uh, Dr. Anderson talking to, um, uh, giving a uh, presentation, talking about that it was like treating 550 large babies.
0: And yes, if you, yeah. Uh, if
2: you find the way to treat children, what toys they like, what they like for tea, what frightens the most, you have a great way to find out how to run a military hospital. Yes, it's
1: yeah. It's just
2: Absolutely brilliant. And they did. They they used they applied the women and children's experience to adults. And I think that might have been one of the ways that it was successful.
1: That's right. But I think there was also a class element to this because uh, most of the men who were treated uh, were ordinary soldiers, so tommies they were called really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so most of them came from quite working class backgrounds. Whereas the women who worked there, not only the doctors, but many of the orderlies came from middle class or upper class backgrounds were quite privileged. So I think that that was quite significant in terms of um, keeping discipline and um, maintaining um, a kind of, you know, respect and belief in what they were doing. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, there was definitely that element as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're always dealing with the cloud of knowing that all of their work may be for nothing because they're going to send these guys right back to where they were injured, right? I mean, how did they deal with that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think that was really poignant. I mean, some of them talked about how it was very similar to being in the suffragette movement because uh, the suffragettes went to prison, they were uh, force-fed, they came out, uh, the doctors got them better again and then they had to go back to prison. Um, but this was obviously even more poignant. and um, there, you know, I came across quite a lot of stories of, of men who'd been wounded and went to Ender Street and were patched up and sent back to the front and then killed um, yeah. later on. So... Um, I think it was um, it was it was very um, close to them, and I think as the years went on, you know, it did kind of um, wear on them. And the, the staff found to, towards the end, of the later years, that um, it was quite um, exhausting and grueling and quite tiring. So I think that eventually did have its its toll on them.
0: Well, just like Keith was saying, I mean, there's so much here to talk about, and we're getting closer to the time. I mean, there's everything from signing Florence Nightingale's death certificate to you know, treating a, a soldier who was one of the police officers who arrested one of them during a protest. I mean, yes. there's just all sorts of just amazing little, little things in here. But I, I don't want to skip past talking about the the epidemic, Spanish flu. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of skipping ahead here so we don't miss that, considering we're still in the middle of COVID-19 here. Um, tell us a little bit about that, Wendy. Well,
1: yes, exactly. Well, when the war ended, um, Ender Street stayed open for another year. So uh, the doctors then treated the victims of the, um, the um, influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. Um, and the second wave, which was the most lethal, most lethal wave of the pandemic, actually hit Britain at the very time of the armistice. So uh, November 1918, where people were out celebrating in the streets um, that peace had come. That's when the, the flu hit its um, really highest peak. And so Ender Street um, became um, inundated by um, by, pe- by patients with the flu. So not only soldiers, but local people as well were admitted. Um, and I think that was that was really their um, darkest time because the staff had really kept going throughout the war through this um, uh, sort of camaraderie and um, patriotic spirit of fighting the common enemy. But they were powerless against this invisible enemy, the the flu virus. Um, There was very little they could do to help patients, only nurse them and um, uh, give them fluids and hope for the best. Uh, So, in fact, the death toll um, at the hospital per week was higher during the flu epidemic than it had been during the war per week. Um, So that was incredibly uh, depressing and hard for the staff. And also, um, literally difficult because many of the staff got ill too with the flu, and uh, at least four of them actually died of the flu. Uh, so, yeah, there are definitely parallels with um, what health staff, in particular, are going through at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it the but even reading that, you see that their approach to the flu was very modern. That they that they seem to understand isolation. That they seem to understand. And and if you think about it um in a time where they didn't really have the masks and the protective equipment, um, yeah, f- uh, a small number died and a number got sick, but the numbers of the people infected, of the, the caregivers, were not as high as you would be ex- expected to. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. clearly, they were on to something. I, I wish we had the lessons, which yeah. I think... I think leads to the, the way to end this, to talk about, you know, is this wonderful heart lifting story, but really the, the punchline of it is the legacy is not, is, is disappointing that it yeah. took years for us to, to get back to a point where they were and largely because it got buried. Um, I, I got the sense reading the, the final chapters that it was a, it was a source of bitterness for both Dr. Murray and Dr. Anderson and for a lot of the people working. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, how did, you know, how could we have ignored that much success, that much experience? Mm -hmm. Colin and I were talking about that. What are Mm -hmm. your thoughts about that? And what did it take to, to jostle people out of this complacency and this ridiculous misogyny that they had?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely shocking because um, when the hospital closed, um, the women doctors and all the women staff had to go back to doing exactly the jobs they'd done before. So all the women doctors had to go back to just treating women and children. The hospitals, again, stopped recruiting women doctors, the women doctors who'd worked there throughout the war, who'd kept the hospitals open in the war. And they were sacked and no more women doctors were recruited in the hospitals. Medical schools, which had opened their doors to women students in the war, closed their doors again. Um, so all the experience that these women doctors, and particularly surgeons, had gained through the war was lost. Um, so, yeah, there was um, lots of frustration, lots of anger. Um, some of the women doctors, um, um, you know, were very bitter. Um, you know, they actually tried for many years to um, to get uh, get jobs in mainstream hospitals and were knocked back and even if um, women doctors did get jobs if they got married they were not then allowed to carry on so there was a marriage bar that was in place um, until as late as the 1970s Um, uh, so it was not until the second world war that women doctors again were allowed to work in the british army Um, but i believe after that there was another backlash and women were pushed back again so it was not really until the uh, Sex Discrimination Act of 1975 in Britain that um, women were given equal equal chances to work in, in hospitals and in medicine generally. And not until that 2000 that um, equal numbers of women were um, t- t- enrolled in medical schools. So it's very recent that um, women doctors have had any semblance of equality and uh, many women doctors I speak to now still find it very frustrating that um, they are still uh, not getting into top jobs, top, top levels of specialties. Um, so there's still a long way to go, I think, still.
2: Yeah. And I think about the lost opportunity. I mean, Dr. Anderson did 7,000 cases or more uh, during her time there. The, just the ability to teach and to teach important trauma that would have been so, so helpful uh Mm -hmm. for world war ii but uh, of course as you pointed out in your book people wanted to wipe out the memory of world war one it's over we don't even have Mm -hmm. to think about it anymore and we lost Mm -hmm. that entire generation of knowledge Mm -hmm. and i think we're still finding the pieces i mean again this story that you've told um and just from a standpoint i'm an orthopedic surgeon and it's curious that we're taught that uh, Robert Jones during World War One is the father of orthopedic surgery, mm-hmm. and yet for the first time ever, I read in the book that um, that really a lot of the the limb work and the brace work and the surgical work was done at Endel Street, and yeah. that's that's really where the pioneering was. We have no idea; all we know is Robert Jones. Um, so yeah,
1: I suppose, that, I suppose that's what happens in medical history, isn't it? That um, yeah. certain people get adopted as the pioneers, and other people get forgotten and left out and uh frequently the women um are not sort of not remembered and erased from history so um so there were many women doctors who worked at endless Street. Uh, some of them uh, came, came come from australia and from canada mm-hmm. went back to their countries and had the same situation where they couldn't get um you know well-paid well-respected jobs um, um, yeah, it's it's just hard to imagine. I think how you know, angry or frustrated they must have been, and how determined they were to try and change things ultimately.
0: Well, this is always a challenging time in history to read about too, because you just come away feeling really dejected when you read about World War One. I. I mean, it was just such an overwhelming, senseless loss of, of people for nothing.
1: Mm, yeah, and yeah.
0: nothing was learned, and then we it was just like an intermission between you know First World War and second world war i mean it's just it's just incredible and, and and i guess this is part of it but um and plus you know you're talking to americans you know we always like a happy ending you know yeah well, <laughs> I, I, we're still looking say, for it where is it <laughs> I,
1: well, I should say i think a lot of the book is actually quite uplifting because mm-hmm. oh it is I no question during the war the women who worked at industry really were having the time of their lives they were doing something they were good at that they were respected for the first time. They had independence for the first time.
0: Camaraderie and, there, working the team. Exactly
1: that. And when uh, Flora Murray died not soon after the war, and uh, later Louisa Garrett Anderson died, and on uh, Flora's tombstone, the words were added, "We have been gloriously happy." And so that's that's what I take away from the story: that they did what they um, what they wanted to do, and they proved that they could do it, and they died happy.
0: Did, you know, after going through something like this and the, and the, the tight bonds that developed, did you find that these women, as they went their separate ways, continued to correspond with each other? Were there ever reunions, anything like that? Or did it just kind of disperse into history?
1: Yeah, certainly. Certainly some of them did keep um, keep up contact. And um, Louisa Gattamson actually visited Australia at one point. So she went there and met up with some of the surgeons who'd worked for her at Ender Street. Um, so, yeah, there were certainly bonds there, yeah.
0: Well, Wendy, we're at the end of the hour, unfortunately. Um, I just can't say it enough. I mean, people should pick up your book because we just scratched <laughs> the surface here. We say that a lot, though, don't we, Keith? Because that's right. That's, <laughs> that's why we pick these books. But um, I don't know. It's got to feel satisfying, Wendy, to write something like this, right? I mean, you know, some of these records, probably no one's looked at them since, you know, maybe the times they were put together, right? I mean, some of the research you were doing. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to show gratitude to people so long ago that did forge a path for for us and for others. But I guess this is a way of doing it, isn't it, Wendy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel it's like the, it's probably the most important book I've ever written.
0: Really?
1: Um, and one of the most enjoyable also because uh, through writing, I got in touch with lots of families of um, <laughs> women doctors who'd worked there, so grandsons and granddaughters of women who'd worked at Angel Street. Uh, but also grandchildren of men who'd been treated there. So who shared their stories and pictures with me. Um, So it was very moving to write it and incredibly enjoyable. And um, yeah, I just feel it's a really important story to, to um, be shared more widely.
0: It absolutely is. Well, Wendy uh, to close things out, tell everybody listening here, how they can learn more about you, more about your work and more about uh, either Randall street or no man's land, depending where you're, where you're picking up the book. And of course, where they can pick up the book.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay. So, uh, so the book's um, titled Ender Street in the UK. It's no man's land in America. And um, there's, yeah, there's more information on my website, uh, which is www.wendymoore.org.
0: Well, we'll get links up to that on the website as we always do. So everybody can take a look at, uh, take a look at it in further depth, but, Wendy Moore, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, uh, I, knew we're, I knew I knew this was going to be a great conversation. We we're looking forward to it, but it was, it's just really special to explore something we know so little about, but we really should. I mean, this is, this is a great. Well, thank you. It's
1: been such a pleasure to talk to you both. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful for it.
0: Well, everybody, wherever, whenever you listen to us, take care and we'll see you here next time.